Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Flaky Biscuit is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. We're really doing it, huh? <laughs> We're making it. Welcome to the Flaky Biscuit Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Ford, also known as Arson Brian. You know that I write cookbooks. You know that I've done TV shows. But most importantly, I just love to cook and bake for others. Each episode, we're cooking delicious morsels of nostalgia, meals and recipes that have comforted and guided our guests to success. So that means each episode, all right, I'm creating a recipe from scratch. Fam, I'm talking about from scratch. Literally hand-delivering it to my guests. Recipes that hopefully you're also making at home. Maybe giving me advice on where I went right or wrong, how to make it better, how did it taste, how did it smell. And speaking of taste and smell, y'all, our guest today is no stranger to picking up flavors and scents. <laughs> so I have my work cut out for me, to be completely honest. All right, he's an award-winning sommelier, winemaker, entrepreneur who owns restaurants, a bakery. I mean, he's milling. He about to be milling flour <laughs> out there in Brooklyn. You know what I mean? And not only that. He was the first black person to win the title of best young sommelier in America. I am so excited and thrilled to have my new friend, Andre Mack, on the podcast. How you doing, Andre? Yay, yay. I'm doing great, man. <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm busy. I'm excited. I'm trying to get the pandemic behind us and just really excited to welcome people back. And I think that we should treat everybody with grace. It was really challenging, wasn't it? Yes, it was very very challenging. Speaking of grace, man, you you know, we we kind of have been linking up. You've been treating me pretty good. I just ate at your new restaurant, <laughs> Kingfisher. I just tried some of your new rye whiskey. Yeah. Very exciting to see you yesterday. It tasted delicious, man. I was really, really excited to be there. Thanks for coming through, man. Yeah. It's always one of those things where when you breathe life into something, something that starts in your mind and on paper and you kind of push it around and and then it's the label. And then, you know, finally, you know, something like yesterday, which is the launch right. of uh, my new company called Ryan Sons Whiskey, that you put it out in the world and you let other people taste it. And, and you know, it, it becomes alive. People start to say the name. You know, it kind of freaks me out a little bit. Yeah. I always kind of compare it slightly to maybe someone reciting your lyrics when you're on stage. And it's a little <laughs> bit of that, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, I can definitely relate when I see people posting recipes from my cookbook two years later. I'm like, what this did that? Is that still on people's shelves? <laughs> yeah. That kind of surreal moment. But listen, we're going to talk a lot about all of your endeavors, but we're starting this episode off talking about how you got there, right? Yeah. And it seems to me you got there with the very specific snack. 
<laughs> that kind of kickstarted something. All right, so we're going to dive deep into this. So let us know what you had me bake. So my parents, we never really baked anything. And so it was really interesting when you came to me and I try to think of something from my childhood very early on. And it was, it's called a tasty cake. It's a butterscotch crumpet. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much regional. So I uh, was born in Trenton. I spent the first 15 summers of my life in Trenton. And there was just something that was very special about that thing. I didn't get mm -hmm. to have it a lot. And so it was kind of like a reward in a way for going to the store for my elders. If I found some change some, somewhere, that's something that I, that I would indulge in. I lived all over the world with my parents, and it was something that you couldn't get anywhere else. Like, you had to be there. And that's what made it special. I'd never heard of them before. Obviously, with that kind of story, it's clearly a pretty special thing that you were eating all the time. But when I talked to you about Tasty Cakes, Butterscotch Crimpets, I was like, literally like, I, what is that? <laughs> I was on like Amazon trying to find them and it was like $40 a box or something. And I was yeah. just like, wait. So I went out, I got some for the first time. But for those that don't know, Tasty Baking Company is actually who makes Tasty Cakes crimpets and, and different things originally from Philadelphia, I think in the 19, 1914. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know much about the history of Tasty Cakes, but besides being a staple of like packed lunches and snack time and going to Phillies games, Tasty Cakes has some interesting civil rights backstory. Oh, really? I don't know anything about it. A Baptist minister named Reverend Leon Sullivan organized a boycott against Tasty Cake Company in the 60s to improve job opportunities for African-Americans. And wow. yeah, so, you know, Tasty Cakes were very popular in African-American neighborhoods, right? Correct. They were in the Black-owned grocery stores and people were really eating them a lot. You know, and the company hired a lot of Black employees. However, it restricted them. They really didn't give them the opportunities that they should have been getting, so they boycotted. And they finally negotiated better terms for Black employees. And... The black drivers started getting fixed routes and, you know, uh, black women were able to take positions that were reserved for white women. And, you know, all the facilities got desegregated. And I didn't realize any of that. I was just a little kid in that little packet. <laughs> so the two pack is how they sold them. And uh, it was at a, a black owned corner store called Scotty's. You had to go through the schoolyard, hang a left. And Scotty's was on the corner, which was interesting in their time. It was before the time that like you kind of saw different races owning stores in in black neighborhoods right oh interesting yeah so like you know we had black owned corner stores right so scotty's was like kind of really like the first person you ever saw as an entrepreneur who looked like me uh -huh. right he owned the store like i didn't know many other people who owned a store who looked like me that i could touch that was like right there right right you know i had gone on that gone to that store for forever like ever since i can remember but you know you got to remember this is during the time of like crack epidemic right but like also during the time that like as a child you got sent to the store to buy cigarettes for your elders <laughs> oh man that was why we would go to the store and that was the negotiating thing it was like hey i need you to run to the store and get some a pack of cigarettes for me and then you're like can i keep the change Right. Yeah, <laughs> right so let me get that tasty cake real quick. Yeah. That, can I keep the change? And when it was good, I got a tasty cake. And when it wasn't so good, but still like you could order like a king. This is the time they had penny candy. <laughs> if you roll up in there with 65 cents, it was like, let me get five Swedish fish. Let me get some jawbreakers. <laughs> let me get three of those. Let me get six of those. Yeah. And then you walk out of there with a bag. And it was like one person, Scotty, who was like opening all the jars behind the counter and filling your bag up. 
And then right right on the counter was a jar of pickled pig feet, right? <laughs> Man, like, I know all about that. My dad used to come home with them too. <laughs> yeah, we have, we have to get those too. But it was just something about that time and era of like what that reminds me about. Right. You know, you walk through a schoolyard, a playground with, you know, concrete, syringes, crack vials. Oof. Then you get this sketchy little corner that you would have to go down. That was like kind of the scariest part. And then you would come out on the other side of the street. And somehow it was like the first start of my kind of independence. Right. I mean, it was in first grade. And I was walking around, going to the corner store. It just reminds me of a lot of like just where I came from. Mm-hmm. And to realize that like, if you want to make a change in your life, I think the easiest change to make is just to move. Even if you just move to the other side of town. Right. But I got to see at an earlier age that the world was just bigger than the place that I came from, whether it was good or bad. It's very interesting that someone in the position that you're currently in, that the tasty cake butterscotch crimpet is actually <laughs> what brings you back to those humble roots. Correct. It sounds like you have a very vivid memory about oh, dude, tasty cake. Like humble beginnings. Like you're describing the alley. You're describing syringes. Yeah. You're describing seemingly kind of traumatic things that you were up against in your life. Correct. But that moment of getting the 65 cents and being able to get that tasty cake, it sounds like it kind of brought you into a a place of happiness a little bit. It did. And not to say that I didn't have a happy childhood, right? Right. (laughs) It was just where we were, right? And like in that whole thing of like, you know, I don't reflect much in life because you can see where it all could go wrong. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I would probably end up on the fetal position on the floor. (laughs) Right. But the idea of it is, is that that you could come from where I come from and do the things that I've done. There's something about that. And Tasty Cakes reminds me a lot of Trenton, which I think really kind of made me who I am. Mm-hmm. I think I lived there for like the first three or four years of my life and then we end up moving. But I spent every summer until I was 15 in Trenton, New Jersey. Right. It was a big thing for my mother, wanted, you know, really wanted me to know where I come from and not lose where I came from. Now, were you still a 15-year-old going down to Scotty's and buying Tasty Cakes, or did you evolve? Absolutely. Oh, you no, were. We were we're yeah, yeah, we still go to Scotty's. We didn't have to ask for the change, but we would still go over to Scotty's, and Scotty still owned it. I think he retired recently. But it was just one of those things that you learn so much by being there, you know, also right. like being street smart, like just kind of understanding your roots and under, who you come from, especially when you're put in the world where I was the only person who looked like me. of the time in the rest of my life. Right. Yeah. And so kind of understanding that like, okay, this is where you come from. You're in this world and you can be who you want to be, but like also know that you come from these people. I, I have a similar kind of nostalgic energy when it comes to um, vending machine honey buns. (laughs) Oh my God. Those are the best. I'm telling you. Vending machine honey buns is probably like my crimpet is to you because it, (laughs) you know, at the time when I was exposed to them, it was kind of the same thing. I mean, you know, my parents had food stamps and I used Mm -hmm. to have to get like the free lunch tickets, but I was embarrassed to get them because everyone would know I'm poor. So sometimes I literally just wouldn't get my lunch ticket just to avoid that shame because like it's a whole process. It's a different line. The ticket looks different. Like everyone just knows you're broke. So I would scrape up change and just go get honey buns from the vending machine Mm -hmm. just to get something to eat so that I didn't starve when I was at school. So, you know, and I've recreated honey buns. Like it's it's, it's just it's so great to get this recipe because I was like, man, I'm not the only one. Like you would think my man with the Pinot Noir and the Oregon Vineyard. (laughs) 
I was like reading about you. I was like, man, this man really likes burgers. I bet he's going to hit me I with like, some burger and I'm going to have to make like a sourdough brioche bun and really <laughs> jazz it up. And But when you hit me with the crown, I was like, man, he's just like me, man. I'm straight up yeah. thinking about honey buns most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> We're really going to kind of dive into what I brought to you. And I know, you know, these usually come in a two pack. I think I brought you like seven on a paper plate <laughs> in a Ziploc bag. But let's talk about what you, what do you taste? What do you smell when you eat a tasty cake, butterscotch crimpet? I think for me, it was like, you would open the bag, there'd be a little bit of the, the frosting. So you smell like this sweet cream. Yeah. But it was like confectionery. So you like smelled really sweet and, mm -hmm. and very dense. And then it's like you open it up and then it's moist. The cake on the bottom is, is really moist, which is kind of weird to think that like, it's not made with good stuff, right? <laughs> no. But it tastes so good. But you know that it used to be actually, I think that they at the beginning were using sugarcane and, and cocoa from the Ivory Coast and like vanilla from Madagascar and cinnamon from Indonesia. But as scale happened, you know, as they kind of got Correct. bigger, I think that's when like, you know, yellow dye number six started coming into play <laughs> or xanthan gum or whatever's in there. But it was, you know, and then it was like that first bite, right? And then you get a little bit of the... You get a little bit of the butterscotch cream that gets mm -hmm. stuck in the front part of my teeth. Uh -huh. I mean, it was just like, it was such a joy. And, you know, you would eat them a certain way. I would take one bite from the other side. I'd turn around, take the bite from the other side. And then I would turn it. Really? Yeah. It was what? Just, <laughs> Why? Yeah, I don't know. Because I was just a kid. I, I mean, I think I was trying to take as many bites as I could to make it last. Oh, okay. There were two of them. So I would take a bite, like, you know, so it's like, they're like rectangles, right? Yeah. So I'd take a bite off the top like in the, from the front, and then I'd turn around, take a bite off the back, and then I'd take a bite off the side. What? Somehow it made it take longer. I don't know. I was just a little kid. And it, it sounds like it was almost like a ritual too. Yeah. It was that much of a, of a comfort that you developed some kind of meditation <laughs> with your with your crimping. Yeah. Well, and then if your cousins were around, like they would try to finagle out of one. Ah, uh, good old cousins, huh? You're like, you didn't go to Scotty's. I went all the way over there, dude. You didn't go there. I asked you if you wanted to come with me. You didn't want to come with me. So you get none of these, but I'll give you a Swedish fish. I gave two Swedish fish. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right? I, got, I got those for a nickel. So, so there was always a negotiation. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was that kind of thing of like, it just reminds me of so much diving into these things, you know, treating it like it was caviar in a way. Ooh. Like, you know, how some people Ooh. would treat it in that way of like, it's like very precious and it was like a kind of a serious and a fun thing for me. Yeah. Wow. That boy said Tasty Cakes is like caviar. That's a hashtag right there. <laughs> so, you know, I got this box of Tasty Cakes. I come home. You know, I tell Bridget, I'm like, yo, like, and to be honest, my first reaction, I ate a pack. I ate a whole pack. Of, I just like inhaled them basically. Okay. And I don't know if you're going to get upset about this. I thought they tasted like Twinkies at first. Okay. I thought mm -hmm. there was kind of a Twinkie vibe happening with the cake. Correct. But then the icing started. It's like in the aftertaste, that butterscotch, mm -hmm. I'm starting to feel it a little bit. I'm like, okay. Yep. So I need to make a simple, maybe some powdered sugar brown sugar and butter to make the that kind of butterscotch situation on the stove. So I heated that up. I just kind of went off the cuff. Okay. I don't make that many cakes. I do have a few in my new cookbook, but like, I'm not, you know, I'm more of the bread guy, the savory, the lamination or whatever. So I was like, all right, I got my cake game. And I was like, I'm just going to go with the simple vanilla cake. I mean, I don't have, you know, the ingredients list on the box is like this big. I, yeah. I was scared to try to recreate that package flavor. You know about that package flavor? Like I've made honey buns from scratch. And they taste good, but I'm like, 
is it tastes like the packaged vending machine honey bun that's been sitting there for 10 months? No. So, and that's a required taste. That's, that's <laughs> that is definitely required. Like, I like that, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, I love that. Yeah, of course you would have to. Our doctors <laughs> don't like that. We no, love it. They do not. But we, I love that. <laughs> no, it's the best. It is absolutely the best. It is the absolute best. Um, <laughs> so I made the yellow cake. I did the simple, you know, dries, wets. Oh, no, I didn't do the simple, actually. No, you didn't. You put your foot in it. I did, yeah. <laughs> I whipped some egg whites up and added some cream of tartar and folded that into the batter to try to like get something dense but light at the same time. Okay. I iced it. I put it in the fridge. I actually got a DM from someone when I posted the box of Tasty Cakes Crimpets, and they were like, are you from Philly? And I was like, I don't know. Why would I be from Philly? Because I have this box. And they're like, man, the secret my mom had was to put them in the fridge and I would eat them the next day. And so mm -hmm. that stuck with my mind. I was like, sure, I could make this ice it and cut them and then bring them. Or I could let it sit in the fridge for a bit to kind of let them solidify within themselves. Mm -hmm. Let that icing kind of harden. Because, um, you know, when you get in a package, it's kind of like a stiff icing. Yeah. So that was the approach. I cut them into the weird shape that you know there's no molds for this they have a monopoly i guess on the mold for this i think that's actually a really clever business model yeah they're very distinctive yeah it's distinctive nothing looks like this and then i took the train i found you in the street in front of your restaurant kingfisher i mean you came running out and the time has come to figure out did i bring you back and and you know it's called the proust effect when someone tastes foods that they've eaten when they were younger it's an emotional response. Correct. These memories just return. It's not like you, you don't try to do it. It just happens. Yeah, it happened in Ratatouille with the food critic. It did. Remember he, he ate the Ratatouille? <laughs> yeah, I remember. Yo, that boy was like, I remember when we was broke and we just had zucchini and tomato. <laughs> this was just straight up delicious. And he was on his bike, yeah. So the world wants to know, you know what I'm saying? The listeners want to know. Brian Ford wants to know. Bridget Kenna wants to know. I'm sure the producers that are sitting there listening to us want to know too, Andre. Did I nail it? Did you go back? Where did you go when you took your bites? I went back. You totally took me back. You nailed it. Yes. All the flavors were there. The flavors were there. The texture was a little off, but like. Okay. Texturally. Okay. Yeah. But you, you know, but it couldn't be right. I would never yeah. expect it to be like that package thing. Right. 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 But literally like. In Scotty's, standing in the store, oh. right in the middle. And Tasty Cakes used to be on the left-hand side. It was one aisle that went straight down the middle. On the right-hand side was a glass counter. And Scotty would be on the right, like, standing there. <laughs> and that's where I was, right back there. And just kind wow. of looking around. And, and to be honest, I haven't had one, oh, shit, maybe 15 years. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's been quite some time, even though like, I'm back on the East Coast. Did I just rekindle your creative growth? I mean, did this... <laughs> Even though the shape wasn't, like, right, but, like, I I got what you were trying to do. Like, if I had, if I just walked in and saw them on the ground or, like, saw them on someone's table, I would be like, hey, I know that. Highest compliment of all time. Yeah. If I saw this on the ground, out in the streets, I would think they're tasty. No, I was you. <laughs> on someone's table, I would totally know what that was. And yeah. I would ask if I could have one or sneak and like lick some of the frosting off the side. 
Well, listen, man, I got extra frosting in the fridge. Not even joking. If you want to come over, um, we got some fun content when I brought these uh, taste cakes to you for the listeners. You guys can check that out on the social media channels and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And stay tuned towards the end of this episode. We're going to circle back to these crimpets. We're going to play a little game. It's going to be really fun and you don't want to miss out on that. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. All right, all right, let's just jump back in. You told me you're growing up in Trenton. You returned every summer to, to continue to reconnect with your roots. What about how did you get into wine? I mean, <laughs> I know that you, you know, worked in finance for a bit. I can relate. I used to be a CPA. Yep. But give me your, you know, how did it really go down with you to kind of use that tasty cake tradition, that habit, that meditation, and transform <laughs> it into this career? Yeah, I have worked in restaurants. I always worked in food service. So my first job when I was 16, I worked at McDonald's. I worked at like some really famous restaurants. Yeah, <laughs> McDonald's, super famous. <laughs> I worked at fine, fine, dining, yeah, fine Dining. And then, you know, going to college, it was just more like waiting tables at a restaurant. I was working at Red Lobster. Oh, the good stuff. Yep, yep, you know. And I think what I learned about all the, I think, one, you know, the restaurant business is pretty transient, right? Especially in the front of the house. Everybody's going on to bigger and better things. Right. And generally speaking, being a waiter is not your bigger and better thing. And I think it came time for me for my bigger and better thing. I ended up getting a job at Citicorp Investment Services. And, you know, I was out. And when I left, it was just so funny. I was just miserable. I just sat and answered the phones. And, uh, man, you know, I was a licensed stockbroker, but we couldn't give any advice. So basically, we were just working with high net individuals. So anybody who had over 300000 in accounts with Citibank, they would pick up the phone and they would just ask us stock quotes. I mean, it was before an, a smartphone came along, right? right? Was that your first experience learning what it's like to be the only person that looks like you in a workplace? Or was it diverse? I mean, what was... No, I was the only person that... There weren't that many people that looked like me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's been all my life, like where I went to school. 
you know, hobbies, you know, like all the white kids used to fight over wanting me to stay at a night at their houses over the, on the weekend. Right. You know what I mean? It was just like, you were sort of a hot commodity in that, in that sense. Yeah, Everybody man. wanted to hang out. And it was just funny to be able to, you know, see the differences. And something that really plagues me to this day of like my guilt of working really hard. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, you would go and stay the night at someone's home and they, their house and all the things that were very different than what I had. They had more, oh, yeah. But their fathers were never around, and it wasn't. It wasn't like their fathers were gone. It was like their, their dads were always on a business trip or something. And it just made me always think that, like, wow, like maybe if my father was gone, we would have more <laughs> kind of thing. You know, like stupid things when you're yeah. when you're a child, right? Yeah. And somehow I've adopted that to my whole life. Like, you know, I'm going to therapy about it, but like, that's what I thought that I wanted as a child, right? You know, I mean, I spent a decade on the road building a business. You know, I think I spent a lot of time with my children, but like literally like home for Friday night dinner, Saturday, take them to sports classes, Sunday, take out the trash, Monday, get back on a plane. And this was for 10 years straight? For 10 years, for a decade. I mean, we spent the summers, like we took three months off at a time. Like we did other things, but I've always been the only person that looks like me. That's something that like, <laughs> that I had to be comfortable with. And to be honest, I, I was, right? Like, I felt like that was the other side of diversity. Yeah. Meaning that, yeah, like, like I could have just stayed in Trenton and hung out with people who look like me. But the point that we, my parents and, and I guess me, were willing to sacrifice being the only people who look like us in the room, I think that really enriched my life in a way that that it maybe it didn't for other people I grew up with. It, yeah, and it is enriching. I swear we're almost cut from the same cloth. Not only do I relate to this, but it's like I really lived it as well. But Correct. do you ever find, do you ever feel like you have to have different versions of yourself in order to function in different environments? I mean, to tell you a little bit about me, you know, I walked into an interview for a big four accounting firm and I'm the only person that looks like me. And my name is Brian Ford and I have a different voice and da, 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 you know, and it turns into a whole, <laughs> it kind of turns into a whole game. And then when I get home, it's almost like I have to like take that costume off, hang it up in the closet mm -hmm. and give myself a minute to relax. So do you also, I don't know, I mean, maybe you still do it, but did you have to do that in those beginning days to kind of get traction in the, in the wine industry? Correct. I think it's just all about knowing who your audience is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that it's like faking the funk or whatever they no, want to call it. No, It's knowing who your audience is. Like you get on stage and you say, okay, so who, who's in the crowd today? Yeah. So, all right, I'm going to focus my talk so it's more poignant to their point of view. Right. That's how I look at it, right? So like I can talk to anybody. I know how to like, hey, there's a guy shooting dice in front of my house. <laughs> I don't like that. So I know you how to go out there and, yeah. and say what I need to say to them. And then I know what I need to say, you know, when I'm having a conversation with a Fortune 500 CEO. Yes. And so I totally had to do that. And so by the time I got to like finance, that part didn't bother me. It was just more like I thought it was going to be great. And yeah, I achieved this thing and blah, 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 blah. I guess what I realized was that my bigger and better thing was right there underneath my nose, right? Like I enjoyed talking to people, like walking up right. to a group of strangers. There was something about like the day, knowing that it would start in the same way, but like the journey within those hours was totally different depending on who came in. Right. And so ultimately I was laid off and pretty traumatic, I think in a way of like, man, fuck, like I did all this thing to get to this place and now I'm actually going back. But I took my time because there was severance. And honestly, I was watching old episodes of Frasier that really just invited me to have wine in my life. Really? It was never, oh, Frasier, I'm going to build this company and, and do all the things that I've done. It was just like, hey, they're having a great time. Like, maybe you should 
enjoy wine. Man. And Frazier is like two pompous brothers who were basically characters of themselves, right? Wine always seemed from the outside looking in as like this pretty pretentious thing. You know, people wearing ascots and convertibles, well manicured lawns and all those kind of things. And when you don't see anybody who looks like you, most of the time you don't think it's for you. But I've always found that like humor was always a great foil to pretension. Mm-hmm. And so through humor, by watching that show, I felt like it gave me some comedic antidotes to kind of like protect myself. <laughs> and it actually gave me the courage to walk into a wine store for the first time. Really? And that was the start of it. At that point, you had never even walked into a wine store or had no desire for it until you saw the dudes on Fraser getting down with a nice glass. Uh, what were they drinking? Correct. I mean, everything. Well, I mean, I think it started with Sherry. Oh, Sherry. Okay. Yeah, that was my mom's thing. She's like, man, like you drink like an old white man. What's happening over with you? So, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> I think the only time I've ever tasted Sherry was in like the turtle soup at Commander's Palace in New Orleans <laughs> or something like that. It's a whole thing. And so on one of the episodes, like when it first starts, Niles comes over. Fraser says, hey, would you fancy a scotch? Uh-huh. He goes, ah. Uh-huh. And then he says, how about a sherry? And then that's when it started. So it was like from sherry. And then it was just like, you know, they were drinking Gewürztraminer. They were drinking Sancerre. They were drinking like Gaia. Like, okay. you know, they were drinking some of the best wines. You know, the, how I found out 1961 in Bordeaux was a revered vintage was through that show. Right. So it taught me a lot about like the Sancerre Sauvignon Blanc. It taught me a lot by watching it, but also just piqued my interest and just like kind of got me into drinking on my free time. And so I would go into the wine shop and I'd be like, hey, I got 12 bucks. What do you got for me today? And so it was just always a dialect and a conversation with wine people. What you realize is that they love to talk <laughs> and they love to share the information, right? They like, do. I'm going to keep talking today. I'm just be yapping, right? Want. That's why you're here. I mean, <laughs> So it sounds like what you're basically telling me is that through your career in finance, albeit, you know, maybe it was brief or not, through watching Frasier, through learning wine, through how you grew up, you've developed the ability to walk outside and (laughs) tell dudes playing a dice game to get off your block while you go get a tasty cake and go back inside to a Zoom call with like a CEO of like a major corporation that you're like closing a deal with yeah you ready there's levels to this shit there's levels to this shit there's levels you gotta tell people (laughs) and then i think people talk about like catching the wine bug right and that was it and so i went back to work in restaurants i started to work at restaurants with better wine list and it was just like i want to do this Right. But it wasn't just restaurants. I mean, you you were at uh, some pretty high high end places, huh? Yeah. Well, before that, like right when at the beginning, like I got into wine in less than 18 months. I was a sommelier at the French Laundry. Mm-hmm. I had won a competition. I took the job as a sommelier at the French Laundry. I moved to California and had never worked in a fine dining restaurant. So there was a lot of stuff going on there. It was a really fun time. It was a really hard time. It's like on Friday where he's like, how, how can you get fired on your day off? Shit would happen on your day off. And like somehow you were responsible, <laughs> right? Because maybe you didn't, do, you know, it was just a weird thing. Like everybody held themselves accountable. It was one of the wildest and crazy places that I ever worked. Everybody cared, the attention to detail. It was the first time in my life where up until that point, I thought a hard day meant that like you came home and your feet hurt and your back hurt. Right. Not only did your feet and your back hurt, like your brain was mush. Your brain is just exploding. <laughs> yeah, you just had so much. The expectations were so high. 
but it was just really cool. And I felt like it was something that I, I really needed. I don't think I would be doing what I'm doing today if I didn't have that, that experience. And to know that like you, that you could go to the mountaintop and it didn't, it didn't look the way that everybody thought it should look. Right. Meaning that like I worked at the French Laundry and like you had to walk outside through the rain or through the elements to the chef's garage to go get like an $1,800 bottle of champagne. <laughs> Sitting on a rusty grate inside a refrigerator in his garage. And that's what made it great. What makes great restaurants are, and those great experiences are the things that you have to overcome, that you can't see. And that's what made it great. And that's what I tell all the young kids now, that they think everything has to be shiny and new for it to be that. And it's like, no, it's about a belief. Service is something that you do. Hospitality is the reason why you do it. That has kind of been the driving force. And then I moved to New York and I ran the beverage department at Per Se for about three years. Mm -hmm. I met my wife who worked at Per Se. We had a secret romance. <laughs> How secret? Like walk-in freezer secret or? No, no, it was, that, that could never happen like that. We'd be at a bar, ponied up to the bar. You know, I'm all in her ear, whispering sweet nothings in her ear. And then the front door opens. You had a beanie on? <laughs> uh, I had a hat on. And, and the chef walks in. Oh, okay. And I'm like, oh, shit. Uh -oh. So now I'm on the other side of the bar. I'm back there with the employee. I'm on the ground hiding. The bartender's like, sir, you can't be back here. You can't be back here. And I was like, I'm looking for my contacts. And I'm looking around. <laughs> and then I look up and he's like, you're wearing glasses. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> so then I come back over. You know, the chef would pass. But it was like many moments like that. And, you know, eventually then my girlfriend, she ended up leaving she wrote a book that wasn't authorized, a New York mm -hmm. Times most notable book called Service Included, which was a memoir of sorts of a 27-year-old Ivy League educated woman who found herself at the most anticipated restaurant opening in New York history. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Takes you behind the scenes about how, you know, Thomas hired, you know, retired ballerina to teach us how to walk through the dining room. We had seminars from people all over the world. It was just like... That is nuts. <laughs> it was just like a really crazy experience. And then the second half of the book is she meets a dark and mysterious and handsome sommelier. A dark, mysterious, handsome <laughs> sommelier. Uh, I wonder who that could be. <laughs> and then it made it uncomfortable at work. Right. She was considered press. So in our manager's meeting, she was on the agenda. So it made it a little tough. You had a bounce. Yeah, I think it's so funny. It made me make a decision, a hard decision that I probably would have never made. Right. It was good there. I would have stayed there. People don't give up those jobs. But like, also, I realized that like, you have to be able to be willing to give up the good to get the great. And this was a really good job. I just kept saying to myself, this can't be as good as it gets for me. Yeah. And, you know, they don't teach you that kind of mentality. Like, that's not something that can be taught, in my opinion. I'm starting to right. learn through my own career that those moments where you feel like you're at the top of the mountain, you feel like you're doing it, you feel like it's, oh, no one gives up these jobs. No one doesn't yeah. do this. And you step back and you're like, but I got other shit to do. This is great, but I know that I'm capable of more. And so... Correct. I'm still, you know, I'm like you said, there's levels. Like, I feel like I'm seeing three steps, four steps, ten steps ahead. You should. Even though I'm like thriving right and sometimes you do have to ground yourself and say hold on a second let me raise a glass to myself and and take a night off and actually appreciate everything that i've Correct. been doing but then the next day you just jump right back you get back right in so you started jumping on the airplane i'm assuming this is when you started getting out to the west coast and exploring your own business ventures yeah that was the idea you know it was stop and start for like three years i had to humble myself and take jobs and consult mm -hmm. but it was in 2010 i left consulting and working for other people. And that's when I really got on the road. 
And so it was that decade from 2010 to 2020, just traveling all over the world. And it felt like every time I left, like I was giving myself a raise every time, like we were building mm. something. And, and I spent a lot of time in restaurants this time around as an entrepreneur, I was the one who had to pick up the check. Stay flaky. We'll be right back. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Enough of that, enough of that. Back to the interview. I mean, on the wine side, I feel like you've definitely changed people's lives. Uh, by people's, I mean the two people in this kitchen, Brian Ford and Bridget Kenna, who drink the OPP like every night. <laughs> other people's Pinot, correct? Correct. Other people's Pinot. You've got restaurants and other endeavors. I mean, specific, you know, you've got Anson's, Hambar, you've got chickadee bread, which, you know, I'm already talking to your baker, giving him a panic attack because he's like, why is this guy? Why is this guy saying we're doing a pop up? What? What's going on? No, he loves it. And that's the thing, right? Like the thing is, it's like, it's not about me. This guy is talented and like he should be meeting people like you. He should be just understanding and being more immersed in like his field and, and like knowing prominent people and people should be talking to him. And like, you know, our chef, I feel the same way. Like to me, it's just really to help them get their shine on. Right. And to do something great. Right. I like that. So, yeah, we started I started a company called Maison Noir Wines in 2007, all based out of the Willamette Valley. We sell wines in almost every single state in about 22 countries. And the thought was like just accessible wines that kind of over deliver. We don't take the wine, the packaging. I don't take myself too serious. I let the wine inside the bottle do all the talking. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not over adulterated with oak. They're not manipulated with fillers and colors and stuff like that, you know, mm -hmm. additives. And so that was kind of the goal that was approachable. And then it just so happened that on a retail shelf under $25 was like this sweet spot. Oof, it's so sweet. It's incredibly sweet. <laughs> yeah. And like, so the price point, we always felt over deliver. I think we've raised our prices once in 10 years. Yeah. And that's me just wanting to like taking less. 
just so that we can still be, you know, on that playing field. And then, you know, for me, packaging was always interesting and fun. We chose black and white because it was stark. It reminded me a lot of a, of a child shopping in the grocery store. Hmm. You know, we used to do like those real shopping trips where you dread it. You're like, oh, my God. And then you went up every single aisle with your mother. And then every aisle was more like a, you know, a mosaic of colors. And then you would hit this one aisle, which was called the generic aisle. And it's before grocery stores had any marketing. It was called generic. So everything was packaged in white. And then they had black letters on it. And it would just Uh, say beer or say potato chips. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And it was from that. I designed the labels myself. I couldn't afford a designer or anything like that. And that was it. You've got, you know, these wonderful new restaurants and and, and this bakery. We'll make sure we put all the details uh, on the socials. But on one final note, in terms of wine, I have a little game I want to play with you. All right. We're playing a little flaky game here. Okay. So very simple. And I, I hope, I hope, hope we're the first people that have asked you this. But what wine would you pair with Tasty Cakes Butterscotch Crimpet? Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. I like this. Yeah. You know, I'd have to think a little bit in detail, but like first off the top of the dome, it would probably just be champagne. Oh, shoot. Off the top of the dome, it's champagne. Is it a Grand Cru? <laughs> I would probably do more like a special club, something that's like heavily toasted in oak, maybe. So I would probably do something more like um, Krug with that. So it's pretty powerful through its like oak aging, but like the bubbles kind of act more like a scrubbing agent to kind of really help clean some of that butterscotch. Scrub that frosting off your teeth. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You know, it's funny, right? Because when I, when I first got into wine and we talked about food and wine pairing, like I just never knew what people were talking about. Right. And so I was like trying to figure out a way how to explain it to people. And to me, it's always been to reset your palate back to zero. So the first bite tastes as good as the last bite. Got you. It's like to cleanse the palate and to reset your palate at to zero. So maybe they meet each other here or they can offset where you do something that's high acid to cut through something rich and fatty or you do creamy with creamy kind of thing here. I think we would probably we would match more of I'm getting too technical. We match more. No, you're not. I love this. The creaminess and the richness of Krug champagne with that denseness of the cake wow. and the frosting with this bubbles and acid uh, that kind of really cleanse the palate at the end. Yo, fam, that's wild. You broke down <laughs> you broke down a champagne pairing with Tasty Cakes, Butterscotch Crimpets. I think our listeners are going to really love that. I really want them to try it themselves. I am probably going try to try it myself. Listen, before we get you out of here, there's a couple of important things that we want to touch on. You know, in the Flaky Biscuit podcast, we're always not just talking about food and nostalgia and how something like a Tasty Cake can really mold your feelings and emotions and, and propel you into success. It's all about achieving that success and then finding some community-oriented goals to immerse yourself in. Andre, I know you talked about the food bank, but I would love it if you could tell me and my listeners a little bit more about what this project is, why it's important to you, and how it's going to positively affect the community that it uh, involves. Well, I just must preface it by like, this is all new for me. I don't come from a place of philanthropy. right? And also, I think that most of the time we think of it as like, having so much money that you give it away, it comes with time, giving of your time and yourself. And so Correct. that's what's been interesting and new for me. Leslie Gordon, who just recently took over the food bank, just recently met her. And so we've been working on ways to really kind of be able to work together. Uh, it is the largest food bank on the East Coast. 
It's like uh, providing meals for inner city youth, children, and people of need. There's a pantry where they have distribution where families can go in and pick up meals. I'm just excited to be a part of it. I don't know how, you know, in what way, but, you know, being able to give my time. I think the notion is, is that we know somebody in our lives who's not getting enough to eat. Yeah. And even like when you talked about the honey bun, so you wouldn't starve. Like we know people like a young Brian. Yeah. And I think that in our mind, we think that it affects certain people and it affects a lot more people than, than we see. And hopefully like through the work with Food Bank that I could just raise a lot more awareness of it and we can help people not go to sleep hungry. Yeah. I literally had to kind of hold back a slight tear there, honestly, though, because it, you know, when you when I think about, man, I get too deep in this, it'll break down. But I mean, I think about those days where, you know, my dad had to literally go find food from somewhere. Yeah. And you're so funny. What does that even mean? Like for some people say, go find food. You're like, what is that? Literally, we were fortunate enough to where it's, you know, it it wasn't to the point where, you know, we're digging in the streets or something like that for scraps, you know, and it's not, it wasn't like that, but it, you know, literal, like, where are we getting a loaf of bread for the week? I mean, you know, my dad would drive or take a bus miles to find churches that had just a couple boxes of a hamburger helper or a couple cans of uh, Campbell's soup. And he would kind of just make this collection of food and, Listen, you know, I'm going to definitely sidebar with you on this food bank situation. I'm here as well in the city, and I would love to get involved as well in in any way that I can. I really want our listeners to also participate. You know, we'll have information for people to to kind of understand exactly what this is. Yeah, very important. And it's it's. I like how you prefaced it with like, I'm new at this. I am. We really appreciate that. And I'm sure that we'll take that a long way. That's going to be clutch. I'm, I'm definitely going to hit you up about okay. what I can do to help and facilitate that movement. I'm thinking about, I'm going to give some bread away. Let's do it. When you said something like, oh, like just to get a loaf of bread for the week, I mean... We can do that all day long. Whatever it is, man, let's make some loaves and let's let's get some people fed. Let's do it. Andre Mack, the absolute renaissance man, possibly one of my new mentors. I don't know. <laughs> and I, I don't think I told people how we actually kind of met. I mean, oh, yeah, that's right. Following on social media, this, you know, you're, you're the wine guy on YouTube and all this kind of thing. And I made a rap song about croissants. It was funny. You reposted it. You're like, yo, this is crazy. And I was like, yo, you should come have pizza in my backyard. And you, you got the energy. You're like, oh, okay. I bet. I'll be there. Yeah. And I've been following you for a while. It was great to finally connect. And here we are. <laughs> here we are. But, you know, as people listen to this, um, you know, check out Kingfisher. Check out Maison Noir. Check out all the wine. Check out Andre Mack. It's been such a pleasure, my friend. Hope you have a great one. Thanks, man. You too. Cheers. Thanks for listening, fam. If you want to make my version of Tasty Cakes Butterscotch Crimpets for yourself, find the recipe on Shondaland.com. And you already know I want to know how it goes. I want to see your bakes. I want to see how beautiful your Tasty Cakes come out. Tag me at Artisan Brian. Tag Andre Mack. That's at Andre H. Mack. Tag Shondaland, of course. And we want to see we want to see y'all cutting up the little Tasty Cake Crumpet shape. Get onto the Discord and talk about it. These recipes are collective you know let's make them let's make them better honestly the advice i can give you for this is make sure your batter is not layer too thick you want it nice and thin so that you don't get a tasty cake that's too tall you know what i'm saying you got to replicate that tasty cake shape don't forget to look up your local food bank at feedingamerica.org where you can donate and volunteer you can find all the websites and handles i've mentioned in the show notes for this episode 
if you like flaky biscuit rate it review it five stars 10 stars all right this is the best food podcast ever exists make sure that you let everyone know that let's blow it up man let's make it big Flaky Biscuit is executive produced by Sandy Bailey, Alex Alche, Lauren Homan, Tyler Klang, and Gabrielle Collins. Our creative producer is Bridget Kenna, and our editor and producer is Nicholas Harder, with music by Crucial. Recipes from Flaky Biscuit can be found each week on Shondaland.com. Subscribe to the Shondaland YouTube channel for more Flaky Biscuit content. Flaky Biscuit is a production of Shondaland Audio, in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 